From Church on Morgan, a United Methodist congregation whose desire is to be a reminder of the beauty of God and each other. This podcast is a collection of Sunday teachings inspired by the Revised Common Lectionary and recorded weekly in Raleigh, North Carolina. And now, a moment of silence before this episode begins. and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This morning's reading comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 3. And we're just going to hang out in the first six verses. But hear now the word of the Lord. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, And he led his flock beyond the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. And then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So when I um, first read this text and uh, imagine what I might have to offer on the other side of three months of really wonderful rest and time away, and my first shot at kind of being back up here again and seeing if I do know how to talk to people. I, I'm not certain, but we're going to try. Um, I thought, why not start with something really light and easy, like the meaning of life? So I partly blame Billie Eilish for this, who has just been in the background all summer long, reminding me to ask the question of what was I made for? And, uh, and perhaps you've been joining in that chorus as well. And so this morning, here's what we're going to do. And I know some of you love it, some of you hate it. It's only going to be a minute or two. I'm going to invite you to turn uh, either to someone that you came with or someone uh, that you're going to meet, a new friend. And I want you to take your shot at answering the question, uh, what is the meaning of life? Or as Billy would say it, uh, what were you made for? Right? Here's the catch. Wrong answers only. Okay? So... <laughs> What were you made for? Wrong answers only. Uh, We'll put a little music in the background. I'll pull you back in about two minutes. All right, let's go. So uh, the thing that's interesting about that question is we we actually know the wrong answers really well. Uh, We know that we weren't made to make money. We know that we weren't made for a job. We, We know that we weren't made to 
to just cook and clean and tell everybody they're wrong. We, we, we know this is true, and yet it, if we're being honest, it doesn't stop us from living as if that was true, right? That if, if you pause for a moment and take a bit of an inventory of your life, you start to realize that, though I know this ultimately isn't what I was made for, I live as if it is. Most of us do. And it puts us in a, um, a certain kind of mindset. It sets us up a certain way of living that in our most honest moments. And some of us, uh, we've got enough things to accomplish in our teens and 20s and 30s that sometimes we can delay this epiphany, this aha, this moment till maybe you're 40 or something like that. But at some point, it shows up for you and you start to go, seriously, this is it, another 40 years of this? And and yet we don't know what else could possibly be. I uh, am reading a book right now that's incredibly challenging to me um, about what's broken in the church and whether it has a future. And um, this turns out to be a big part of the author's kind of idea as he's diagnosing our current age and the way that the church itself has gotten it caught up in it and pursuing and running after all these things that ultimately aren't what we're made for. But this is like an example of um, Andrew Root's diagnosis of the moment that many of us find ourselves in, that as we, we rush after all of these things that we know aren't ultimately why we're here, what it does to our lives is this, is it leads to profound disconnection. And we disconnect from what's right in front of us And we end up alienating from even ourselves, from the life that we're living right now. And it's not just us that we disconnect from. We also disconnect from each other. We disconnect from the person who's right in front of us, which harms them because we begin to treat them like an object or an obstacle. And it hurts us too. This rush after all these things that we think and know our life isn't about, but we all find ourselves in, it can lead us to stop feeling alive because we can no longer just be. We can no longer just remember and embrace that we're alive, receiving this life as a gift. We can't stop and we can't be. We need to move faster and faster to have what's out ahead of us, and we tell ourselves that we don't have a choice We have to keep our mind on what's next or we will miss it. Miss what? We're actually not sure because we don't have time to ask such questions. We are rushing, running, accomplishing, creating, building, achieving, doing, and all of that is leading us to disconnect from right now, this life, who's in front of me, my very self, and at some point you wake up just feeling completely cut off from life itself, and without even the time and the bandwidth to ask the question, which is why I think this moment, this divine encounter has just captured the imagination of people for 3,000 years, because it's such a rare exception to that wheel that we're on. Moses, you, you probably know a little bit of his story, but uh, he's a guy who's busy and he's got a lot on his mind, right? And uh, Moses, uh, he 
was a Hebrew child that gets raised by Egyptian powers, but he always knows deep down that he's part of the class that's being oppressed. Uh, it's like this secret that he carries inside of himself because if he outs himself, he'll lose all the privilege that he has, but he also sees the injustice that's happening to the Israelites who are being um, who've been enslaved, and one day it just spills over, and he's so mad that he strikes one of these Egyptians, and he kills him. And in that moment, he becomes a murderer. He becomes found out. He's terrified, and so he runs. He's a fugitive. He's on the run. He has no friends. He has no family. He has no idea where he's going. He gets welcomed in by this foreign family, and one thing leads to another, and he ends up marrying the daughter of this man who takes him in Jethro, uh, because he has no resources or opportunity, the only gig he can get is tending his father-in-law's sheep. And so every day he's out here on the hills with the sheep of his father-in-law in a foreign country, cut off from his people, scared that he's going to be found out, taken back. He's got plenty to think about, plenty to do, plenty to distract him, lots to keep him in the past and the future. And yet somehow out of nowhere, this miracle happens, which is in the midst of all that chaos, like the chaos that's in your life and mine, somehow he finds a way for a few moments to be present to his actual life in the, in the moment he finds himself in. One day in the middle of work, he's walking out in the hills and he notices. He notices that there's a bush off to the side that seems to be burning. It's on fire, but it's not burning up. And he says to himself, I'm going to turn aside and pay attention to this. And, and as Moses makes this unbelievable um, gesture, which so few of us are able to do in the midst of everything that's going on, just show up and truly be present to another person for a few moments or, or to what's happening inside of me or what's happening around me. Moses somehow does this. And it becomes, in many ways, the beginning of the origin story. This is where the story begins. This is where the liberation of the people of God starts from. It starts from one small moment of noticing. Moses notices a bush, and God notices him noticing. He says, finally. I mean, how many other bushes had been on fire for the last 10 years, right? It's, um, you can't hear a story like this and not think of Alice Walker's The Color Purple. And you know the name of that? novel, which incredible book, comes from this line where one of the characters says, I think it pisses God off when you walk by a field of purple and you don't stop and notice. Right? This is the day that Moses slowed down and noticed. The sheep will take care of themselves for a few minutes. The problems I'm trying to work out about how I make my way in this family or ever return home, I'm going to put down for a second. And I'm just going to observe what is that right there? I'm going to enjoy the fact that I'm out here and something's going on with this bush and fire is pretty hypnotizing and why not just enjoy it for a few moments? And as Moses notices and God notices Moses noticing, God's like, well, now I can work with this. And shows up in the bush and calls out to him. Moses, Moses, he hears his name called by, by the God who created him. And Moses replies, here I am. Not back there, not way up there, not over there, I'm here. And between God's gracious call and his consent to be present, the storyteller tells us this moment becomes holy. 
It's unlike ordinary daily life. It's a set-apart kind of time and experience. Moses takes off his sandals, gets a little closer to the earth, to the place from which he came, a little bit more grounded, a little bit more attuned from kind of his toes all the way to his eyes and now his ears. He, he is in this space. And there's something different about the quality of this experience. The thing is difficult about these kind of stories is... Um, they kind of defy, by nature, description. Like, words fail us in moments like this. If you've ever had some sort of divine encounter, it, this morning Sam asked our uh, worship team this great question. He said, when was the last time, and I'm going to butcher the question already, when was the last time that you had an experience of kind of a, a divine encounter, or a sense of the fullness of this life, or that the God was near? And what I want you to do is just tell us the location you were in. No details, just where were you? And I was in the car. I was in the bonus room. I was at the coffee shop. I was on the greenway. And you begin to try and explain what that was, and you find real quickly you just sort of run out of words. One of the things I got to do at the beginning of my sabbatical and at the end uh, was go spend some time at this monastery not too far away from Charleston. It's beautiful. I intend to go back. I hope some of you will risk it and join me in it. Um, but I, I, I had a handful of those experiences there, sitting on the side of the Cooper River, watching turtles lay nests and dolphins swim by. And I had this like ecstatic kind of thin space. I had also been silent for like three straight days, didn't talk to another human being. And it was like this, just to be on, it, it, it was the kind of thing if, You've ever heard somebody give their testimony about being on psilocybin, right? And you're like, no, man, the thing was like, all oh, but here in love. And you're like, all right, yeah. I mean, I, I just furiously start writing all the experiences, all the ahas, all the ideas. And this week I went back and I'm like, I'll just explain to them like what happened. And I start reading my notes and it was like gibberish. It was like somebody in the middle of a dream, right? You're like, this doesn't make any sense. Th this is kind of what it's like. There's this mystery to it. There's this thickness. There's this other world kind of. And so the, the saints and the mystics among us have for ages tried to point to this moment, to this opportunity. And, and they use all kinds of words, better than I have. They, this is the, the conversation around uh, loving awareness. If you've ever heard someone talk about that, this awareness, this loving awareness of all that animates and moves the whole world and, and a way to drop into that. Or um, one of the words that I love that so many spiritual teachers use these days is resonance resonance. There's a resonance to the experience. It's like a, a chord where two notes hit together and it creates something more than the two of them. There's this like vibration. There's this wholeness. There's this like beauty and melody and harmony to it. People talk about a resonance that you can experience. Um, in the Christian tradition, especially our Eastern Orthodox siblings, they often talk about as theosis, union with God. Wesleyans, we like communion, 
Sometimes in our minds, we just go straight to bread and juice when what's being offered and what we're trying to point to is something much deeper. This sense of oneness and connection with the divine and all that is, right? But Moses has one of these moments, and it, it defies description. But I just want to pause for a second this morning and remind you, like, this, this is our story, too. And, and Jesus, same sort of frustrated prophet, everywhere he went was offering this good news to people. When he talked about the kingdom of God, all of his disciples and those around him would say, that's great. Now, is the kingdom of God, like, back then? Is it coming? Do you know the date? Is there a certain zip code we should be in on a certain day so that we might experience it? And he kept saying, it's not over there. It's not up there. It's not behind you. The kingdom of God is within you. It's at hand. It's right now. If you would just open your eyes to see. And so like any religious leader, we, we mobbed him and we said, hey, what should I do about my taxes? What do you think about this inheritance fight that I'm having with my sibling? I'm trying to build this. Any instructions that you might have for this huge project that I have? And Jesus instead would turn to them and go, did you guys notice the birds or how that grass grows? You know when you look at the clouds, right? And we're like, this guy, look, uh, we're trying to do something, man. Uh, help us, right? This, this is what Jesus was up to, and his contemporaries missed it, and we miss him too. We're so obsessed with our goals and achievement and accomplishments and what we're trying to build that we're not present to why we're here to begin with. One of the most freeing things I've heard Father G say, who I quote way too much, is um, someone asked him one time, how do I know what God's plan for my life is? He says, I don't know if God has a plan for your life. In fact, I don't think he does because God's too busy delighting in you, right? There, there's, a, there's something deeper than having like a gig. There's, there's more at stake here than something to just burn your energy off on until you die. And it's not just like saints and mystics and people who like camping who get to experience this, right? <clears throat> so I kind of hesitate to share this, but I think as a church, we've got to find ways to create space for redemption stories. And, and this is in no way an endorsement of poor behavior, but as a point of how available this is to all of us, saints and not saints. One of the most remarkable moments I've seen of this was in a Aziz Ansari stand-up special. And many of you know that Aziz uh, was involved in some really harmful sexual behavior. And um, by his account and the woman's, it wasn't technically rape, but it was, it was more than it should have been. And it was a part of kind of the Me Too era, and in a night he watched all of his fame and go away, and he wondered if he would ever be able to do stand-up again or if anybody would come to his show. And in 2019, he had his first show since that um, experience. And at the top, he, he makes an apology, and he begins to explain what he's learned and grown and whatever. He goes on to do the stand-up, and the crowd joins him, and, and they laugh, and he's kind of classic comedian doing his thing again. And at the very end of his stand-up, he says, thank you, everyone, and good night. And everybody gives him a big round of applause. And then he just kind of gestures like, 
but I seriously have something else to say. And for the last six minutes of a stand-up, he says, here's the deal. For years, I would get up and say, thank you and good night. And the truth is, I never really meant it. I knew it was the thing you're supposed to say, but I didn't mean it. Uh, It never occurred to me what it cost you financially to get here, that that you had to make a decision, you had to buy the ticket, you had to spend your money, you had to get in your car, you had to drive down to this place, you had to wait in line, you had to get in this seat to sit here and listen to me talk on a microphone. And because of what I've gone through in the last couple months, I knew it all went away. It was like I died. And I, there, there was a chance that I would never get to do this again. So when I say tonight, like, thank you and good night, I actually mean it. Like, I mean it in a way that's hard to express. And, and then he goes on to say, um, I want to tell you another story about my grandma. He had done some stand-up about his grandma who was in hospice and had died. And he comes back and he says, the thing I didn't tell you about my grandma was that in those final days when I was sitting with her as she was dying, um, he said that... Um, The whole time I was with her, she was smiling, she was laughing, she was there with me, and she was present in a way that no other people I've ever been around have been. And I've tried to take that with me. The moment I'm in with the people I'm with, and right now this is our moment. So let's just take it in. And for like 30 seconds, this auditorium full of people who were just laughing at the most inappropriate stuff as hard as they could settle into this like sacred, holy recognition of the gift of their own lives and of everybody else they've been in this room with. And you watch the camera just pan as they kind of like notice their life led by this unlikely priest in this unholy temple, right? People are grounded again. So it's about this point of uh, this talk that I figured the eye rolls are probably at the back of their heads. Um, And it might be a good idea to get a urine test on our pastor. Um, (laughs) That's nice, sabbatical Justin, right? I'm glad that you had three months you know, befriending the turtles. But (laughs) the rest of us, we've got like jobs and responsibilities, and I'm already nervous that this isn't gonna wrap in time for me to get back to those things, right? And and I just wanna say like, I, I totally hear you, and I actually don't disagree, like fully. And what I want you to know, we, di- we didn't read the whole text, you can keep reading. What happens next on the other side of this like holy experience, this theophany, this divine encounter, is that Moses is actually given a job, a really profound job, to, to liberate his people, to go back, to set them free, and he does it. He's given something to do, for sure. We have something to do in this life. We have roles and tasks and responsibilities and professions and callings, and all of that's true. What I don't want you to miss, because it's been so life-changing for me, is that before Moses is given a task by God, he's called by name by God. That Moses' purpose, what was he made for? His purpose was not ultimately in his profession. It was in being present to the gift of this life. 
Richard Rohr says it like this. He says, presence is presence is presence. And how you do it is how you do everything. And this is what I think he means by it, is that the degree to which you are able to be present by the power, I believe, of the Holy Spirit at work in your life, through the grace of Jesus Christ, to this moment and all the pain and joy and suffering that's happening inside of you and inside of the person on the other side of you, to the degree to which you can be present to this moment and who you actually are and where you are and when you are, is how you will do everything. It's how you'll parent. It's how you'll friend. It's how you'll lead. This is the thing that we were made for. This is where our flourishing comes from, tuning in to the presence of God in our lives. And the good news, like so many commentators have said about this story, is that every bush in creation is ablaze with the glory of God if we would only have eyes to see it, right? Which raises the question, how do you develop eyes to see it? You're not going to like my answer, but I promise it's better than you think. This is what we call prayer. Barbara Brown Taylor says that it's like uh, God's presence is like a radio signal that's going out all the time, everywhere, and it's up to us to consent whether or not we'll tune in, right? And prayer is the way that we, we pick up the signal again, that we settle in to the truest things about ourselves in this life and each other. It's how we open up the kind of aperture of our vision, such that we can see things in their fullness. One of the craziest experiences, I don't want to rob you of this, I, I don't think I can, which is why I'm going to tell you, one of the wildest things about hanging out with a bunch of monks for a week in total silence is you eat all your meals together, and like on day one or two, you walk in, and it's not Raleigh, it's like it's a bowl of soup and a piece of bread, and, um, and you walk in, you've got 30 minutes to eat lunch, and you're like done in 90 seconds, and most of it's been irritating because you can hear everybody slopping their food up. And you're like, I don't know if I can listen to these people eat for a week. Um, I don't even know if it was worth coming in here to eat this, you know. And um, by the end of the week, I'm sitting there in this refectory with these monks. And you look around and myself and the other retreatants. And like somehow I had taken 30 minutes to eat this bowl of soup. And I no longer heard all the slopping, and if I did, it was like a beautiful reminder of the story and the wonder of this other created being sitting right next to me. And the soup that felt pretty watery on day one seemed to have like eight layers of flavor at day six and seven. It is such a gift to wake up to the life that we've been trusted and the love that's around us and the opportunity to serve each other. And so as a shameless kind of plug here, if, if you don't know how to make space to pay attention to your life or no one's giving you that opportunity, I want to let you know we're giving you that opportunity right now. We've got a retreat coming up, peak week in Boone at a brand new hotel that our friends who are behind Longleaf and Guest House are opening. We'll be one of the first groups that's in there. We have this wonderful guide uh, Mallory Wyckoff, who leads people in paying attention to their life. And we're going to spend a weekend doing that together. And I'm sure some of it's going to be staring at leaves falling from trees, and some of it's going to be processing that together. And, um, and my hope is that you would make space for that. 
Because ultimately, I think it's what we were made for. And it's out of that place that we learn how to put everything else in its place. May this be true of us this weekend and the days to come. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for joining today. If this episode has been meaningful to you, would you take a moment to share it with a friend? To support this ministry or learn more about our community, visit us at churchonmorgan.org.